welcome to the live show. This is Something Rhymes with Purple. I'm Giles Brandreth, coming to you live from Southwest London. This is episode 104, so it's exactly our two-year anniversary as we podcast weekly. And what better way to, than to celebrate with a live audience? You are there, and we are here. As I say, I'm in London, and here is Susie Dent. Uh, I'm trying to save my microphone from being attacked by... Oh, she's now finally stepped down from the desk. So it was me and my rescue cat, Bo, for a little while, and she's going to take up residence behind me. So that's we can see Bo in the background. You can. This is evidence, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, friends across the globe, that this is truly happening live and in colour. Where are you, Susie? Just describe what room you're in, where you live, what's going on where you are. I'm in Oxford. I'm in England. I am in the same place that I have been uh, recording throughout lockdown. So do you remember when we started this time last year and it was my oasis for such a long time? Um, I was here and I've, I've not really moved and nor is the cat much, I have to say. Good. How about you? Where are you? I'm in the my basement bookroom yes, bunker. In the dungeon. I live in a Victorian house in southwest London. And uh, I've done a lot of broadcasting from this house during the past year. Upstairs in the sitting room, I've been broadcasting Celebrity Gogglebox with my friend Maureen Lipman. She's been sitting at the far end of our socially distanced sofa. And uh, in the dining room, if I'm wanting to look grand, there's a lovely set of books in there. I, I sit in front of that when I'm appearing on something like This Morning or The One Show. But this is where I feel coziest and safest. And this is where I come to chat to you. And I'll let you in a little secret. This is, this is, as you can see, it's a room full of books. And uh, these aren't books that I read. These are books mostly that I've either written or edited and so ah, I think, and you receive about 30 copies each time, don't you? you well, actually... And you either foist them upon friends or you... I don't foist them, them upon friends. I, I flog them at, when ah. I do live shows. You, okay. you, you get 20 copies for free. I keep three here in the archive, and the rest uh, I flog signing them. I keep them in the boot and sell them at the shows. But the joy of being down in the basement is that right across, just across the way here, is the room in which I keep all my, my memorabilia, I may take the camera through later so you can see it. Um, and I keep on my jumpers. And uh, next door to that is the loo, which ah. is very helpful because the podcast, you're seeing this live, but normally when it goes out, they can't see us. So sometimes when Susie's giving one of her longer answers, monologue. <laughs> uh, I'm able to slip out to take a comfort break because I'm older than Susie. And, I, and you may, tonight, so if I have to do that tonight. Don't worry, I'll just keep talking. But they'll know I've gone. Um, because the, the, the chair will be missing. Just kind of slowly duck down I'll, and then kind I'll of slowly, I'll slowly duck down and disappear. Anyway, we're so excited to be here because uh, we are where we have been the past year, but there are, and this is what is so thrilling for us, hundreds of you listening and watching us live. So hello to you, uh, Susie, of course, and to Purple People looking into our rooms from all around the world. It's quite daunting. Um, Susie, have you... A scurry funged in anticipation? Yes, I now use scurry funging for Zoom backgrounds. So um, regular purple people will know that to scurry funge, this is a wonderful word from US dialect, is to madly dash about the house, frenetically tidying up, shoving stuff under sofas, into wardrobes, because visitors are about to arrive. So the purple people today are here. So yes, I have scurry funged a bit. It looks, it looks fairly neat, I think, behind me. Although you can see where the cat's clawed the sofa. But still, it's a virtual space. I can't wait for the 
get us to reopen, as I'm sure you can't, Giles. We were both supposed to be on stage um, at some point in the last 12 months. But when we when they do open, we are going to be taking Purple to the Road, which is fantastic hey. news. So watch this space. But not being fixed to the theatre does have one advantage, and that means that we can be seen by people, you know, who are kind of together but apart if you like and there's a big fan of the show Jordan Grantham who is watching he's in Vienna currently hi Jordan and he says he hasn't seen his mom Julia since before the pandemic because she lives in Llandudno in Wales but they're both avid listeners to the podcast they're both here tonight which is fantastic and Jordan says that she would love a hello so Giles for Julia in Llandudno Hello. And Jordan in Vienna. Have you heard, Susie, of a great entertainer called Jack Buchanan? He was regarded Mm. by some as the English Fred Astaire. He was hugely debonair and elegant. He did a lot of shows with Jesse Matthews, and he was in a film called Good Night, Vienna. And when he was at the height of his fame, his, his Rolls Royce, he was driving through, I think it was Ilford, and he saw that Goodnight Vienna was on at the local cinema. So he stopped off and he got out of his Rolls Royce and he went up to the commissionaire. They used to be outside cinemas in those days, smart commissionaires wearing uniform. And he said to this commissionaire, said Jack Buchanan, this world-famous British star, he said, I see you're showing Goodnight Vienna. <laughs> Can I ask, how's it doing? And the commissioner said, well, Goodnight Vienna in Ilford is doing about as well as I imagine Good night, Ilford, would be doing in Vienna. <laughs> Fantastic. So tonight we bring Vienna and Chandudno together, which is exciting. And um, if you would like to shout out to anyone you know who is watching, or if you have a question for Susie and me to answer towards the end of the show or even during the show, then email us, please, at the usual address, purple at somethingelse.com. That's something without a G. Or, or tweet us using the hashtag Ask purple. I'm ready to answer questions of any kind. This is just a little intimate chat. I mean, to be serious for a moment, for us, the the real miracle of Something Rhymes with Purple for Susie and me has been discovering that we weren't alone in our enthusiasm for words and language. And over the last couple of years, getting these literally now more than five million downloads and realising there were Beautiful, brilliant people like all of you who've tuned in tonight, who actually care about language and are and have become our friends. And we have found that actually rather humbling as well as exciting, haven't we? Yeah, we really have. And I remember when we did our first live, live show in a theatre, we were actually genuinely very moved, weren't we, by the sort of number of people who were as passionate as as we are. So thank you for that. Um, And we're going to give actually our purple people a test, aren't we? To test them on how I know I give a trio every week and I know some of them are very esoteric and obscure. I love them, but they are quite difficult to remember because you won't find them in sort of current vernacular, I suppose. So we're giving people a test today, I think. We certainly are. The idea is I'm going to give you one of Susie's words. I mean, she's now given us, well, we've done 104 episodes. That's 312 different words you've given us. Well, one of them was sequacious, S-E-Q-U-A-C-I-O-U-S. Now, how well were you concentrating, purple people? 
So I'm going to give you three possible definitions. So you just have to say which one, if you can remember, this word means. You might know it already. It's been around for a long time. So sequacious. Is it A, someone who squirrels things away for safekeeping? So a bit of a hoarder. Is it someone who acts in a manner outside of the church's teachings? Or is it someone who follows a personal philosophy without any independence of thought? So that is A, someone who squirrels things away for safekeeping, B, someone who acts in a manner outside of the church's teachings, or C, someone who follows a personal philosophy without any independence of thought. That is sequacious. And you can let us know, A, B or C, by emailing, again, purple at somethingelse.com or tweet using the hashtag askpurple. And the winner, chosen at random, will receive a something rhymes with purple mug. Yeah, <laughs> Jazz hands with excitement. Jazz hands. And they can keep thinking on that because we're going to die into the world of fun and games and specifically games because a lot of us have been playing um, board games far more uh, than usual card games you name it they have been pulled out of a dusty cupboard in my case I've rediscovered Boggle Monopoly Cluedo but I have to say Giles if, if I'm ever asked what's one thing that people don't know about you I will often say this, and that is, so many people say to me, oh, Susie, you would beat me hands down at Scrabble. And the honest answer is, I wouldn't, Giles, because I'm rubbish at Scrabble. I don't really play it. It has a very different dictionary to Countdown. So I feel like if I'm going to immerse myself in the Scrabble dictionary, I'll actually get very confused. So I avoid Scrabble like the plague. And I remember Colin Murray thrashing me at Scrabble and putting the winning score on his fridge for two years. He was so proud of it. You see, my face has gone all glum and gloomy. I was a bit worried, yes. Because I knew you were coming up there, because I know, because I've suggested that we play Scrabble now and again. I am a Scrabble enthusiast. Indeed, I'm even wearing my Scrabble jumper. Look, Look at that. Look at that. Look at Playing that. to win. Playing to win, it says in Scrabble tiles on my Scrabble jumper. I love Scrabble. I've loved it all my life. People may not know it's an American game invented in the 1940s. It came to the United Kingdom in 1953. I was a little boy then. My parents got a Scrabble set and through the 1950s, I played Scrabble. And then I went away to a boarding school and I may have shared this with you before. The founder of the boarding school was a very old man who was by then nearly 100. He died aged 101. A man called John Badley, born 1863, died 1965, a contemporary and friend of Oscar Wilde. Indeed, he was the founder, this old man, Mr. Badley, of my school, and Oscar Wilde sent his eldest son to this school. Anyway, Mr. Badley lived in the school grounds, and I, on a Wednesday afternoon, was sent down to the school grounds on alternate Wednesdays to play Scrabble with him. On every other Wednesday, he played chess with a boy called Adam. We'll come on to chess in a moment. But he played Scrabble with me. So I learnt, really, the skills of Scrabble with somebody who was a centenarian and who, in my view, cheated because he used all these words that were obsolete. They weren't in the dictionary any longer. He said they were current when I first learnt them, and he'd learnt them literally about a 100 years before. So I became a devotee of Scrabble. And then when I was in my early 20s, still at university, I was interested in prisons and did some prison visiting. And I saw some inmates of Bristol Prison playing Scrabble. And I thought... There'd just been a documentary on television about the Queen of the Royal Family, and they'd been seen playing Scrabble. I thought, isn't this extraordinary? Here's a game enjoyed by Her Majesty and those entertained at her pleasure. And I put an advertisement in the small ads column of the Times. 
saying who would like to take part in a national Scrabble competition. And hundreds of people replied, eventually thousands. And that's how 50 years ago, literally half a century ago, I founded the National Scrabble Championships. Excellent. And that's um, all down to you. Indeed. I then became, uh, eventually I became a director of Spears Games, who made Scrabble. Yay! This is my Spears Games jumper. Yeah, I've got to jump for every occasion. Just, you get royalty from every single set of Scrabble sold. Wouldn't that be marvellous? But Spears Games, we, when I was a director of Spears Games, we sold Scrabble, and indeed all of Spears Games, in the 1990s to Mattel, one of the two big international toy companies. My tickle, I have to tell you, was pretty tiny. But more than that is it's a pleasure... I love the game. And in the early days of Countdown, literally before you were born, when it began in the early 1980s with Richard Whiteley um, and Carol Vorderperson and people like myself and Ted Moulton, Kenneth Williams in Dictionary Dell, the early contestants, I found them because they were people who had taken part in the Scrabble Championships. Uh, okay. That's how it all began. But you're right, yeah. the dictionary then became different. But let's not talk about Scrabble. Let's talk about board games. Why, for a start, are they called... Board games? Is it because they bore people like you? No, it's different spelling, obviously. Sorry, this my cat, this cat is currently attacking my feet. Um, if I start to laugh, that's why. Um, no, board, because a board, quite simply, was a table. So a cup board was a table for cups. And of course, we changed the pronunciation because we're fickle like that, and it became a cupboard. A sideboard or a side table, it still is, really. And above the board, used in card games, gambling games, etc., means your hands are above the table, so there's no sort of, you know, shenanigans going on underneath. So board games, because they are simply played on a table, that's the origin of that. But something like a chess board, when chess was first played, must be one of the oldest games, was it played on a separate board or was it played on a table with markings on it? That's a really good question. Chess is fascinating linguistically because it's given us so many different terms. So chess itself came into English in around the 12th century, but it's got an ancient heritage. So it came to us from Old French, échec, or its plural form was échec. But it probably goes all the way back to um, Sanskrit, so really ancient language. And even before then, it may have become an in, it begun in India, in China, around the 6th century AD. So we're talking about an ancient game. But the reason I love it is it's given English so many different things. So take the word check. Check, again, came from that old French échec. And that goes back to the Persian shah, meaning Wait, a king. Me. Which check is this? This is... Every single sense of check that you can possibly imagine. Including, including a check you write? And- including the bank check. So oh. check was first used by chess players to announce that the opponent's king had been placed under attack. So um, checkmate goes back to the Persian meaning the king is dead. But check then... Because of this idea of the king being under attack, it gradually broadened in meaning to mean to stop or to restrain or to control something. So you have a checkpoint uh, today, for example. And then to examine the accuracy of in case you needed to control it. And so you check your work over and that kind of thing. And then a squared 
pattern is checked because of the appearance of a chessboard. And we talked before in one of our episodes about how the Chancellor of the Exchequer looks back to the sort of counters or the money, yeah, the money counters essentially for kings and queens who would use a checkered tablecloth to move the kind of counters around that represented money. So all of that really from that very ancient root that gave us chess. So chess has has spawned so many different lovely meanings of check and and various other things. So yeah, what what an ancestry. Is there anything interesting to say about the pieces? I I, I know very little about chess. I can't play chess. It's quite difficult for me. I find it difficult, but I have grandchildren who play it well, and I ought to be able to play it because I'm a great enthusiast for Lewis Carroll. One of the people who is one of my favourite people and a great wordsmith, as you know, Lewis Carroll, real name, Charles Lutwidge Dodgson. This is the 150th anniversary of the publication of Through the Looking Glass, which is based around a game of chess. Mm. And if you know how to play chess, you enjoy the book much more. But the various characters in the chess game, have they given anything to the language? Why is a pawn called a pawn, for example? Uh, Well, a pawn goes back to the idea... this sense upon to the idea of a foot soldier. So it's uh, it's related to peon, P-E-O-N. And it's also, that ultimately goes back to pes, meaning foot. So it gave us pedestrian and things like podiocide, which is putting your foot in it, albeit jokingly. <laughs> Can you hear the cat in the corner here? Sorry. She's choosing the noisiest little bits to sit on this time. It's an envelope. Don't I only scurry funged behind me. Having told so, people I'm adjacent to the loo, they can probably can hear my wife flushing it out there. Darling, <laughs> we are doing a live podcast you know, there are real people listening yeah, you, yes you can show them their face later okay sorry carry on um but should we should we move on to other games yeah, from please. uh from chess like backgammon do you ever play backgammon i do play backgammon and I again i don't think time. i'm very skillful because i play it rather slowly and every i've been to the middle east where they play it out of doors while you know smoking hookahs um like the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland, um, and they sit there and they move the things. <laughs> so, yes, what were you saying about backgammon? Uh, no, it's just the backgammon. So, um, but I had to look this up. I did not know this. Backgammon, Lawrence, our producer, said this, but why gammon? And I was thinking that's a very good uh, question. Yeah. I have no idea. And it's simply a variation on game. So nothing to do with ham. And the back, apparently, because uh, pieces sometimes are forced to go back. So that is backgammon. But the reason I love it linguistically with my um, lexicographer's hat on is that it has also left us linguistic legacy. And that is leaving someone in the lurch. Because lurch actually goes back to an old version of a game that was pretty much like backgammon. And it was played in 16th century France. And it was called Lourche, L-O-U-R-C-H-E. And to Lourche or to Lurch was to leave your adversary trailing behind. I think having scored 61 before they scored 31. And so leaving someone in the lurch meant to leave them so far behind that you left them in difficult circumstances. So, um, yeah, so that goes back to an old game. We're not completely sure what it looked like, but we think it resembled backgammon. Gosh. Because yeah. I, I know so little about this, I'm putting on my poker face. Ah, <laughs> uh, do you play poker? I've attempted to play it. Um, to be honest, my games are more like 
Snap, happy families. That, yes, that, that's I think the level. I'm with you. I do play whist and I enjoy that. And bridge. I went through a phase oh, of playing quite a lot of bridge okay. with my wife and some friends. We used to play bridge quite seriously. And uh, mahjong as well. Basically, we need to have another episode on games because we'll never get through them all. Well, let's um, do poker since I've mentioned poker. poker. Okay, so poker, again, a bit like chess, has been really productive in terms of the the dictionary. In fact, more so, because you've got so many phrases like uh, poker face, you mentioned upping the ante, a busted flush, uh, an ace in the hole, an ace up one sleeve, cashing in your chips. You've got the buck stops here, which is a, a really nice one. And the buck in question is, we think, the handle of a buckhorn knife that was placed in front of the player at a poker table, whose turn it was to deal. Is the name poker anything to do with the, the metal instrument that one uses to poke the fire? No, so that's different. That's oh. a very good question. No, that, that is a different sense of poker. That is a poker as in, as in poking a fire. Yeah, exactly. And where does that, that where does that poke come from? I think that because Germanic. So I think that came from our German Germanic ancestors and then settled into Old English. And pig in a pig in a poke is a different thing. Pig in a poke. The poke there is from the French poche, meaning a pocket. So it was a pig in a not really a pocket, but like a bag. What does the expression mean buying a pig in a poke? Does it mean like you? You don't you, know what you're going to get. You don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. yeah. So you will see something sort of wriggling inside this sack, and it might be uh, a piglet or. Or it might be a cat that sadly didn't really mean very much in those days. were fairly worthless, hence you let the cat out of the bag before you concluded the sale if it ah. jumped out. Um, so that's the pig in the poke. Yeah, the poke there is a, is a pocket. So poker, as in the card game, where does that word come from and why? Uh, we're not completely sure, but it might go back to German again this time. They've got something like pochspiel, which means a bragging game. So it was all about being sort of boastful, if you like. And pochen as well could mean to kind of deceive, uh, which of course you do if you've got a poker face that's that's what it's all about and poker cans again i'm not a player but i understand they've got really interesting nicknames and perhaps some of our audience here tonight will know much more about poker hands but you've got the dead man's hand i've had to write this down it refers to two pairs of aces and eights and the dead man apparently was wild bill wild bill hickok who was shot during a poker game in 1876 and then there are some more contemporary nicknames with ha- which have a slightly more British feel, I suppose. Harry Potter, uh, it was taking me ages to work this one out. This apparently refers to a hand containing a Jack, a J, and a King, a K, after J.K. Rowling. And an Anna Kornikova is an ace and a king, I think. So there are various little nicknames like that, which are quite fun. So I think I need to get into poker. It sounds, it sounds like it could be something else to, you know... Keep us well, going. Maybe we should play uh, when we next get together. It's so long since you and I have actually met. And it'll be quite strange actually being in person. Any other card things to tell us about riffling cards, shuffling cards, decks oh, of shuffling cards? Shuffling cards, riffling cards. Yeah, riffling's got a nice little um, story to it as well. I know, I wish I could do that. I'm rubbish at shuffling. But um, riffling is actually related to riffraff. It goes back to the French riflet, which was to plunder and to sort of spoil, if you like, and then to carry off. So it had sort of fairly grim beginnings because it could be plundering not just of booty, but of plundering the bodies of the dead on the battlefield and taking away whatever they had with them. And it came, there was a French phrase, riflet et raflet, which meant to spoil and to plunder and then to carry away. And that came into English in the form of rif et raf. 
And it meant, first of all, the kind of scraps or the sort of little bits that were kind of obtained in plunder. And then it shifted, went downhill even further to mean the common people, people of no special social standing. And then, of course, because we are inherently probably very classist, it, it meant the kind of the dregs of society. And the reason this is linked to riffling in the card shuffling sense is because the sort of the idea is the winner kind of originally would snatch up or carry off the winnings. And it only later kind of evolved to mean actually shuffling the cards. And then a raffle was another form of kind of gambling. And that is related to riffraff as well. So it's had a really circuitous journey. Uh, to, and riffling through a dictionary or rifling through a dictionary, that's related to it as well, just kind of quickly flicking through. So they're all part of this kind of very strange family. Speaking of, of riffraff, rifling, what about dice games? Yes, dice games. We're more familiar with dice games, or at least with games that involve dice, I guess, because almost every board game involves a dice. A dice or a die. Oh, so which is correct. Like my dad. Well, die was the standard term for a single die, um, and dice was plural. But, so how is, um, how is die spelled then? D-I-E. And that is, that little cube is actually a die. One of yes, those a single, is a die. single die and ah. plural dice. And some people are absolute sticklers for that, whereas other people will just say, well, it's a dice, isn't it? And generally in standard English, you will find dictionary reflecting the usage that dice is now pretty standard for either one or two. And they both go back to the Latin dare, meaning to give or that that is given. In other words, you roll the dice and you're given a score. Excuse me, why is mice the plural of mouse? And dice isn't, uh, the, isn't the singular of douse. It's very confusing. We'll have to do another episode about plurals. It usually goes back to either the fact that we just never stick to our own rules. In fact, we don't have any rules. Or quite often, as in the case of moose, for example, or octopus, which is from Greek. So it's never octopi. It should be octopodes if you want the correct plural. We, you know, we hoovered them up from other languages and we sometimes copied the plurals of other languages and sometimes we came up with our own and sometimes we were just lazy and stuck a nest on. So why is a die called a die when so it should be casting the die as opposed to casting the dice? Uh, well, it was the die is cast, wasn't it? Of course, it? and is yes. that is that that in fact is to not do with... translation of the Caesar Julius Caesar whatever he said when he was crossing the Rubicon. So yes, uh, the Latin datum, something given, something played. Um, and that then gave us the old French de, de, and then we stuck an I in it. So you know you have to remember all the different languages that these kind of basic roots then extended through. So that's die and the, the plural is dice. Uh, anything to tell us about dice games? Um, well, hazard's a nice one. The word hazard, is it, I, what I love is all the kind of hidden stories of games behind everyday words. So hazard, you know, you'll probably see on sort of hazmat or you'll see hazard, danger ahead, etc. But hazard initially was a gambling game played with two dice. And the chances again, the, the rules to these things always seem really arbitrary. I'm sure they made sense to the people playing them at the time. But again, how many different languages this went through? Arabic, Spanish, French, but goes right back to Persian and the Turkish czar, meaning a dice. So hazard initially in the 16th century when it came into English meant a chance or a risk, if you like. And of course, being the pessimistic bunch that we are, we've talked about this, we've talked about the orphaned negatives and being gruntled and couthed and all of that stuff, being lost in time, and we only ever remember the negatives. Hazard meant a chance or an opportunity, but ended up meaning a risk or a loss. Very good. 
Yeah. Look, we've let's let, because we've got so many people wanting to communicate with us. Uh, let's just talk about one more game. One of my grandchildren said, "You're going to talk, aren't you, about snakes and ladders? Oh. Snakes and ladders. I love snakes and ladders. I love snakes and ladders. Couple of things. Back to square one." probably goes back to snakes and ladders. Oh, I thought it was to do with some American sport. There's that lovely story of how football matches were somehow sort of envisaged as being in kind of square. So the, the pitch was divided into eight numbered squares. The Radio Times published this diagram of it and everyone could play along. But actually the dates just don't fit. And also the way we use back to square one doesn't quite fit either. Much more plausible is the fact that you fall down a snake and you go to square one. But what's fascinating about snakes and ladders is that this too is ancient and it seems to have um, started many centuries ago in India where it was an instruction, it was a form of moral education so the ladders were all about kindness and faith and humility and they would kind of take you up towards salvation, which was square 100. Whereas the snakes were the kind of, you know, as always, personification of evil and you would slide down them and that would be your downfall. So it was very much a kind of part of moral education. And as I say, 100 was the kind of the place where you wanted to end up because that was salvation. And in America, they call it shoots and ladders. And a shoot, there must just be like a like a sort of little tube that you might get in a soft play centre. Um, but we, we use snakes instead, which is, I think, much more vivid. So that's Snakes and Ladders. Now, the good news is that we have people from all over the world communicating with us tonight on this live edition of Something Rhymes With Purple. Amy Turner has been in touch, wanting a shout-out to her mum. Though we're at different computers in different houses, it feels like we're on a night out together. Isn't that nice? Well, look... Amy and Mum, cheers. Here's to you. Well done. Also, Karen Coulter in London, watching together but apart with Sayuri and Mariella in Winnipeg in Canada. Wow. So we all knew that Jazz's jumper game would be played, <laughs> apparently, tonight. Um, did you say happy 50th birthday to Graham Fish? Oh, no, I didn't. He's watching tonight's part of his birthday present from his friends at school. Congratulations. Oh, happy birthday, Graham. And, and he's still at school. Well, no wonder. This is a very good educational <laughs> podcast. Tune in every week. Oh, and look at this. You'll love this, Giles. Can yes. we please have a Something Rhymes With Purple jumper added to the merch line so we can all wear them? Oh. Now, I know what Giles is going to say at this point, because <laughs> if there's ever an opportunity for a plug, Giles Brandreth is there. Giles, take it away. Well, no, you can, in fact, if you go to Giles and George Giles. Jumpers somewhere online. You can get one of my jumpers, the the one that used to be worn by Diana, Princess of Wales, saying, um, I'm a luxury if you can afford. And I do have an online shop, but we are going to have a, a whole new range of exciting online merchandise very soon. And maybe we should talk about uh, um, a, a jumper for that. That would be fun. That um, would be fun. Alison, we've got some correspondence yeah, oh, as well, haven't we? Oh, we've got Alison Pope. Oh, Al oh Alison. What a wonderful name. Alison Pope. Do you think she's... Do you think she was related? Are people called Pope because they were once upon a time papists? Do you think that's the origin of that name? Quite possibly. I'm not. An, I'm not anonymous. I need to. I need to get more you're, you're into. It. I mean, a, I love. You're surnames. not a what? Did you say? I'm not sort of very good at onomastics. We we had onomas some. Say some, you've got to say some of these words quite slowly. I know Susie. it's because I'm doubting myself. Some onomastics. Onomastics. Sounds a bit rude to some of us. It did yeah. sound a bit like onanism, it's true. Alison Pope, watching with her 10-year-old son, Jack, tonight, alongside his nanny, who introduced the podcast to him four months ago, and he loves it. 
Um, well, that's brilliant news, Jack. And thank you for sharing new words with Nanny and your mum. And that is lovely news. And we will be very careful to say the right things from now on. But we've got some correspondence, haven't we, Jazz? Oh, yes. Look, Natalie Emden, who is uh, from London and tuned in. Natalie, good good that you're there, Natalie. Uh, hi, both. I was super excited about joining tonight and eagerly awaited my login details. But why do we log in? Oh, good question. Why do mm. we log in or out of something? And why do we have log books? I know paper comes from trees, but surely that's not the root. Am I barking up the wrong tree? Sorry about the terrible puns. We love a pun. I'm a punny person. Uh, Natalie Emden from Lockdown, London Town. What's the answer? Logging in, logging out, logs, where do they come from? I love this. I think Jack will like this one as well. So this actually is all to do with a real log believe it or not. So if you look up log in the dictionary or a log book, should we say, or a captain's log, if you're in Star Trek, you will see it says a book in which the particulars of a ship's voyage are entered daily from the log board. So the first record that we have of a log book is roughly 1689. So nothing to do with computers in those days and everything to do with the speed of a sailing ship that was entered into a log book. But why the log? Because as I say, a a real log or a piece of heavy wood was involved. So it was attached to a knotted rope. You would throw it overboard. And so by throwing it over, you could gauge your speed by seeing how many knots went by for a set period of time. This is why we measure nautical speed in knots, by the way, by the actual knots that are in that were in the rope or in the log line. So the log line was allowed to run out for a fixed period of the time. And then the speed of the ship was the length of the log line that passed over the stern during that time. That was all entered in the log book, just as computer systems keep a log of our access details to the system, which is why we log in. But it is all to do with a piece of wood. Can I chip in with my log story? Very good pun, yes. I'd like to, because uh, uh, I always feel I have to drop a name or two. I don't know how I've got into the habit of doing this, but you drop words, I drop names. And I know nothing really about the Navy, but about 20 years ago, I wrote a biography of the Duke of Edinburgh. I want to explain to Jack that the Duke of Edinburgh is the husband of the Queen, Elizabeth II. He's Prince Philip. He is Prince Philip, and he is an old gentleman. He is 99 years of age and will be 100 on the 10th of June. He's a remarkable person. During the Second World War, he was in the Navy, the British Navy. He was mentioned in dispatches. And I wrote a biography of him, as I say, a couple of decades ago. And he very kindly lent me his log books. Mm. And he explained to me what you've just been telling me about the origin of the log book and logging in the book and also about the knots and all this nautical miles. And I learned all this from him. I then sent him the draft of my book and he called me in and he said, this book you've written, he said, this book, you say here I served in HMS Ramillies. And I said, well, you, you did, sir. I've got it from the logbook. He said, I didn't serve on HMS Ramones. I said, look, sir, excuse me. These are the, your logbooks. I'm returning them to you now. You served on HMS Ramones. He said, if you learnt nothing, you don't serve on a ship. You serve in a ship. You don't uh-huh. live on your house. You live in your house. So you uh-huh. serve in a ship. That's really interesting. And, and that's why, for example, people talk now about 
Um, there's a famous line in Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest, about a diary where one of the characters says she always takes her diary with her on a journey because one must have something sensational to read in the train. And people often use the phrase on the train. I was on the train. But in fact, if you stop to think about it, you're not on the train, you're in the train. Yeah, it's all very confusing. It's another example of how idiosyncratic we are. Uh, just to say, Andrew Martin has said, if I'd known in advance, I'd have got my Giles celebrity name drop bingo board out. Oh, what a funny, <laughs> that's terribly funny. For every name drop, we should go bing. Yeah. Yes, bing. Love it, love it. Prince Philip had to get in yeah, here somewhere. He did, he did. Uh, we've got another letter from, or email rather, in from Andy and Joe in Doncaster and separately from Helen Ward in Leicester because they both asked the same question. More or less. So Andy says, I'm from Derby, where we say bread rolls or cobs. My partner Joanne is from Sheffield, just a few miles up north in Sheffield, where they say bread cakes. Obviously, she is wrong, he says, but why the difference? We're not far apart. And Helen had the same problem when she moved from the southeast to Leicester about 10 years ago. Asking for a roll would earn you very strange looks in the bakers. Um, and they're wondering what's going on. What do you what do you call a ham bappy? butty type thing what would you call it i'd call it a sandwich or a ham <laughs> no, i'd call it a ham but if it was a round thing I'd call around it a, around i'd call it a roll, call it a roll oh, bap. Yes, i might call it a bap mm, bacon bap bacon baps always we don't eat meat but still i popped up this morning on a television program called this morning and mm-hmm. there i saw uh philip schofield and holly willoughby and they were advertising promoting talking about a supersized deep fried Chip butty, a deep fried chip butty. I'm not sure about the deep fried bit. Yes, Mm. a thousand calories in the. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Anyway, we do not encourage that. No. So what is what okay. is correct? What what are these different okay, bread well, terms? Okay, well it's not it's not really about correctness as ever, is it? It's it's all about usage, and dialect is just such a wonderful subject, and it tends to collect around certain themes. And um, we've probably mentioned this once or twice before. It collects around the kind of earthy, pithy direct kind of gossipy bits of life. So you won't find any highfalutin stuff in local dialect. It's all about being hungry, being cold, being gossipy, being flat-footed, having blisters, having sweaty armpits, you name it. And bread rolls, obviously, the staple of life, is another one where bread in particular just attracts so many different words. And local vocab has been found to change over a distance of as little as 25 miles. So that's how quickly you might find definitely accent and possibly vocabulary changing as well which is fascinating so none of these are wrong at all they're just you know there are so many i've, I've written some down here moggy cake scuffler balm cake bat tommy cob rowey stotty bin lid in liverpool barabrith there's just so many and just to say cob i love this one as well because it's got so many distinct meanings so you can have a cob meaning a roll or a loaf of bread it can be a male swan, a short-legged horse, the central part of an ear of corn as well as the cob. And they, what they all have in common is the underlying idea of being stout or rounded or sturdy. And they probably go back to a very old English word meaning the top or the head uh, of something. So it's something, as I say, that's very round and that's why it's attached to a roll. But I would just say <coughs> to Andy, Joanne is definitely not wrong. And uh, Joanne, I think you can give him a, a a bop on the cop for that, or the cob. I'm putting up a hand here. Uh, my roll story coming up. 
combined with a bit of name dropping. Okay. 30 years ago, I was doing a corporate event Mm -hmm. for the music industry. And I was on with Billy Connolly, the great Billy Connolly. The people were getting pretty pixelated and they didn't really want to hear us, but we were there trying to be, I was, I think, supposed to be the master of ceremonies. He was the great cabaret. And uh, they were throwing rolls. And I thought, well, they'll throw a roll at me. And they did. I was doing my best, but they kept throwing the rolls to try and knock me off. But I thought, I've got to introduce Billy Connolly because that's what they've come for. So I said, and here he is, the great Billy Connolly. And on he came. And they didn't just throw the rolls at Billy Connolly. They began dunking them into the wine. No. They kept throwing them. And on he went. They wouldn't stop. And so, as well as dunking the rolls into the wine, they began to put coins, 50p pieces, into the middle of the rolls. That's appalling. And boom. And one of them hit Billy Connolly right in the middle of his head. Yeah. And he walked off. And I heard him in the wings arguing with the booker. And Billy Connolly was saying, and I won't be using bad language because we have young people watching, but Billy Connolly was using some pretty fruity language to say he was going home. And because he hadn't come here to have bread rolls thrown no. with coins in them. The booker said, look, no play, no pay. <gasps> and Billy Connolly understandably said, up yours and yes. it off. But <gasps> I'd heard the words, no play, no pay. So I stood there and carried on regardless with the rolls and the wine and the coins coming towards me until they ran out of bread. So I got the last word. Wow, because that you know they used to throw peanuts in medieval times. So you've got the peanut oh. gallery because people would kind of throw peanuts down from afar, and those too could kind of cause quite a bit of damage. We've got one one question I've just seen from Laura Laverick asking why does flog mean to sell? So we can slip this one into the into the Q and A, and it's a really good question, Laura. I think off the top of my head, I think it goes back to either a Germanic word. Possibly a Viking word, Old Norse, but I think Germanic flogian, which meant pretty much the same thing. Or it can be related to, possibly be related to flagellare in um, Latin, which meant to flagellate, i.e. to whip. And of course, to flog someone is to whip. And when you're selling it, I guess you are, maybe the idea is the horrible idea of flogging a dead horse. I don't know. But that's my guess. And it's a very good question. I I do know where the word comes from, but I'm not quite sure of the sense journey between whipping and selling. Another call out, please. Michael and Ella, shout out to Sonia Haddad, who yes. is Michael's mum, watching from Northern Ireland. Oh, I love Northern Ireland. I left my heart at Queen's University, Belfast, but that's another story we haven't got time for. It's been months since we've seen her and we miss her very much. Aww. Oh, that's nice. Well, i tell you who I miss, um, and he sent in a question tonight as well, and this is Craig Roberts, who's here with Bruce, the guide dog. Craig, one of our earliest listeners ever, Giles, and we miss him from the Countdown Studio because we're not allowed an audience, obviously, at the moment. But Bruce... I give treats, which I shouldn't do, I don't think, but hugs to Bruce every time I see him. He's the most gorgeous dog. So, Bruce, if you can hear me, I miss you as well. But Craig has got in touch to say, what is the origin of the word cliché? And Craig, I think we touched on this. We did an episode called Gutter Snipes about journalism a while ago. But 
Even super fans clearly need reminders. It goes back to, we think, a kind of a word that imitates the sound of mould striking metal because it was used in printer's jargon for a stereotype block. So it was apparently originally supposedly representing the sound of a matrix that was falling kind of downward upon a surface of molten metal um, on the point of cooling. And it because it was a print or design that could be reproduced endlessly because it was a stereotype block, and of course we gave a stereotype as well, it then was used for a kind of trite phrase or any kind of worn out expression. That's a cliche, but it's all to do with printing. And Jack, if you just put your hand over your ears just for a minute, I can also say that printing, if you remember, Giles, also gave us the dog's bollocks, or at least typographers did, because it was their slang for the colon dash, which they thought looked like that particular part of the dog's anatomy. And then it flew below the radar for a little while and then reappeared as part of the whole bees, knees, kippers, knickers, elephants, adenoids, cats, whiskers type formula for something that's the acme of excellence. Hopefully we are the dog's bees we want at to some be. point. Mi- Michaela Pass certainly is. Michaela says, to combat the lockdown blues, Adele and I, that's Michaela, are watching your show in our separate houses and messaging each other throughout. It feels almost like we are watching it together, which I wish so badly that we could. Do you know, people do wish. People, people need people. But do you know what? You've yes. got, we're swapping roles tonight, aren't we? Uh, this, we wanted to do a little bit of excitement. And this is as close as we get. We don't do cross-dressing, but we do cl- do role reversal. And we are going to do a bit of role reversal now because um, we're going to give the answer to, uh, well, the, that challenge, because you normally do a yes. trio, and you yes. challenged us with the word sequacious at the beginning and gave three definitions, yes. okay? And what were the what were the definitions and what was the answer? I think the definitions were sequacious. So does it mean someone who squirrels something away? Does it mean somebody who is outside the kind of religious accepted order? Or is it somebody who slavishly follows another person without really thinking for themselves? And... The winner, <laughs> well, the, the right answer, first of all, is someone who does the latter. They they follow a personal philosophy without really thinking at all of themselves in a very slavish way. So that was C. And the winner is something rhymes with purple mug. Two. Is... We have two <gasps> winners. Two. We are going oh. to run right and give two mugs. The winners Excellent. are Petrina Blair. It's a lovely name. Petrina oh, yeah. Blair and Teresa Huntley who is watching with her son, Ben. Oh, well done. Congratulations. Oh, I wonder, That's if, excellent I wonder if we could squeeze an extra mug in for Ben. OK, so look, I'm going to do three unusual words for you, OK? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, what I'm doing is some Scrabble words, unusual Scrabble words, because you said you're not familiar with the, the Scrabble dictionary. Not the little ones, because they wouldn't score on Countdown. Ah. Well, they would, but, you know, not So highly. a word yeah. like double A, which is a very useful Scrabble word, you wouldn't know. No. A scra- Give me aardvark, though, and I'd be happy. Yeah. Double A is allowed in Scrabble. It's a volcanic lava, which is ra- rather good, don't nice. you think? Bambi is allowed in Scrabble. B-A-M-B-I. Okay. What do you think it is? A Bambi. Uh, anything to do it's with an, bimbo? It's an acronym. 
Oh, are you allowed acronyms in Scrabble? You are. That's what's extraordinary. The the Scrabble now includes all sorts of words that when we began the Scrabble Championships half a century ago wouldn't have been allowed because we began just using the Oxford English Dictionary. But then we now have our own Scrabble Dictionary and we include all sorts of words. So what does Bambi mean? Born again, middle-aged biker. Oh, well, I thought it was mammal, like middle-aged man in Lycra. Okay, got you. That's the same sort of thing, but Bambi's yeah. a word. And I'll just give you one more. Okay. A boo bird. What is a boo bird? Anything to do with the booby? The booby bird that was, I think, very slow-witted and easy to catch, which is why we have the booby prize. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yes, but I don't know. Anything to do with that? The booby bird is quite dweebish. Do you know dweebish as a word? That's a Scrabble word. means quite stupid. Dweebish is allowed. A boo bird is in the Scrabble dictionary as someone who boos. But tonight, (laughs) we are just cheering because the people are so brilliant and we're so grateful for taking part. Do you have a poem for me? I do. I have a really short poem, but it's always meant a lot to me. I think a lot of the purple people listening will know it. It's from Emily Dickinson. And it's very simple. It is, a word is dead when it is said, some say. I say it just begins to live that day. See, I get goosebumps even when I say it. I just think it's beautiful. Emily Dickinson, the most remarkable writer. She was in the 19th century. She was American, not at all known in her life. I think not many of her poems were published during her lifetime. But now she's reckoned one of the great poets of the world. Yeah. And that touches us. And I have to say, we are genuinely touched, uh, moved actually even to tears by the lovely people who tune in to listen to our podcast, Something Rhymes With Purple. You, from our point of view, have been the making of making these weekly excursions into the world of words. So thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you for being with us, you know, many of you, along all the way. And as always, Something Rhymes With Purple is a Something Else production. Oh, oh, hold on. You're right to say it's a Something Else production. We could not do this without all the people at Something Else, you know. You've got buttons. I'm not going to press my button because the only button I've got here that says leave meeting. But have you (laughs) you got a button that could make our our producer Lawrence appear so that people can see who actually is behind the show? Press a button. Let's see if Lawrence appears. Oh, no. No, but look who we've got. Finally, the person that people wanted on their T-shirts. I would just say to all the purple people, Giles, when he saw Gully, this is Gully, when he saw Gully earlier tonight, he said, Gully, are you wearing a mask? And Gully said, no. He does look as if he is. Open your mouth, Gully, so people can see it isn't a mask. (laughs) When he shows his teeth, you can see. But otherwise, his beard is so thick. Look at that. Poor Gully. Now he's a real man. We love Gully. Yeah, 90% hair. This This is Gully. The best poker face in the business and Gully we couldn't have done it without you and quite often we say you're absent but we know that you are there so thank you to Lawrence and thank you to Gully and thank you to Ella and Harriet and Chris and Steve and to you Giles as well from yes. me and thank you and to you Susie Dent you are the best and look I've got a jumper to go out on it's got bobbles on it and more than bobbles it actually says where we've reached there are the bobbles and this tells us Aww. where we are the end <laughs>